I knew I was in trouble when I found out that I was going to follow Steve Wayne this morning. I didn't know how bad it was going to be when I then discovered that it's gotten worse. I now have to follow Austin and Brian and their very insightful comments. Nonetheless, I will forge ahead and I'm going to try to make a somewhat broader set of comments ranging from domestic policy to national security policy, economic policy, but trying to drill a little bit deeper into the executive office of the president and the White House staff itself. I want to start, though, by observing that, at least for me, legacy is a term that I think is fraught with peril. It's especially difficult when we're trying to apply it to a presidency that still has at least a month left to go in office. It also raises all sorts of concerns and questions. What are the bases for making decisions about a president's legacy? Who gets to apply those criteria? On what available knowledge and understanding are those decisions made? And even finally, what is it we mean when we talk about presidential legacy? It seems to me that we might see a president's legacy as reflecting the significant changes and impacts that took place during an administration. We might want to say further that the president or the presidency should be directly involved in initiating or shaping some of those changes or initiations rather than simply reacting to things. Finally, it seems to me that a legacy needs to have some degree of durability. That is, it needs to last for some period of time after a president and their administration has left office. As a result, then, I find Bert Rockman's metaphor when looking at issues of presidential legacy of a footprint to perhaps be somewhat more useful. Now, with all due apologies to Hallmark and others, it seems to me that a president can be seen as establishing footprints of their own. We may want to mention, for example, No Child Left Behind, the federal response to Katrina, perhaps on the more negative end. Presidents also may, as Brian simply pointed out just very recently now, presidents also can trod in the footprints of their predecessors. Sometimes in doing so, they will deepen and perhaps move in a different direction that their predecessors' footprints started them off as. We perhaps can see that with the current president and his extension of the unitary executive theory from its roots in the Mies Justice Department under Ronald Reagan. Perhaps we can see it, too, in many of the administrative presidency strategies of trying to achieve policy goals through executive branch actions rather than through Congress that we also have seen in this administration. Strategies that took root, for example, in what Richard Nathan called the plot that failed in the Nixon administration and has continued through Presidents Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. At the same time, presidential footprints, we should remember, can sometimes be washed away. Steve Wayne reminded us that President Obama may well come into office and do something similar to what Vice President Cheney did in the early days of the Bush transition. Go to the Federal Register and stop the presses. Don't allow any of the executive orders or executive rules that are about to be published to be published themselves. Many things that presidents do can be overturned by their successors. The footprints vanish, if you will. Now these kinds of musings then will be a recurring theme through my comments today. And then I'm going to focus on, as I said a minute ago, on President Bush's White House and Executive Office staff organization and operations. 
I'll be focusing, if you will, on what I like to call as an organization theorist, organization policy. Dave Lewis says that really isn't very sexy to talk about, and yet that's where the decisions get made. That's how we figure out whether what presidents say rhetorically, what happens to it on the ground and in the field, if you will. My emphasis is going to be on continuity and discontinuity. The continuities in the Bush administration with his predecessors and maybe some discontinuities as well, as both Andrew and Scott brought to our attention this morning. What I want to do then is to discuss three core tasks that all White Houses must perform. First, they must maintain orderly processes of consultation and decision making, or at least try to maintain those orderly processes. Secondly, they need to develop and to oversee policy. And third and finally, presidencies are involved in presenting the president to the public. And that raises a whole range of issues that have to do with public relations and public presentation. Starting with presidential decision making and consultation, it seemed to me from the very beginning, much as Professor Wayne said, that the Bush administration had close to a seamless transition, which was a relief to anybody who remembers back to the early days of the Clinton administration. At the outset, the structures and processes were designed by veterans of past administrations, and they generally conformed to what some of us have called, with apologies to our friends in the natural and physical sciences, a standard model of White House organization. That includes inclusive decision processes that are carefully managed with specialized structures for policy, for outreach, and for management of the White House organization. Those White House structures then are led by experienced chiefs of staff in this standard model. We saw much of that and continue to see much of that in the George W. Bush administration. And in many ways in this administration, especially at first, the system worked as it was anticipated to work. Andy Card had a great deal of experience having served as Deputy Chief of Staff under George W. Bush's father, H.W. Bush. His replacement, Joshua Bolton, also had experience as Deputy Chief of Staff and then later as Director of Office of Management and Budget. These were experienced men who did their best to oversee what was going on in the White House office. And in many ways, again, the system worked as was anticipated. From the outset, the Bush White House was notable in its discipline, its focus, and its clear effectiveness at achieving some short-term policy goals. Now we know even from the start, long before 9-11, that there were some concerns about the opaqueness of the Bush White House. Remember, for example, the famous Dick Cheney Energy Task Force where finally the GAO had to go to court to get records of who it was that Vice President Cheney met with during those discussions. We've never seen a full copy of those records. We need to remember. Then came crises, which happened in all administrations, as Professor Wayne reminded us. We began with the 9-11 attacks. We continued through the Iraq War. And then comes Hurricane Katrina. And it seems to be culminating now in the meltdown of the mortgage market and the Wall Street investment banks in 2008, and now the difficulties that the auto companies are experiencing. Under these kinds of circumstances, it seems to me that the carefully managed decision processes in the White House tended to break down. Picking up on a theme that Professor Wayne talked about earlier this morning, 
That is, there are some issues with regard to the agility and the flexibility, the adaptability, if you will, of members of this administration. When things go as planned, when they can work in disciplined ways, they work very well. When events change things, when conditions change, adaptability is somewhat difficult to restore in the White House. Let me give you just two quick examples. Sometimes under these change conditions, under crisis situations, what we see, I think, is a free-for-all, if you will, in which powerful insiders, Vice President Cheney, Secretary Rumsfeld, Secretary Paulson more recently, have played roles as policy entrepreneurs and indeed capture the initiative as to what is to be done. The bailout plan, various kinds of warrantless wiretapping when it comes to the Vice President's office, and a range of other possible examples we can talk about later. We do have some fairly strong evidence of decision flaws and difficulties in the approach to decision making that took place in the White House. There was a lack of, if you will, process rationality, for example, that is the willingness to take a variety of different kinds of views from diverse perspectives and orient them toward finally making a decision, neither too soon in the process nor too late in the process. We have some evidence that, that, that the decisions in this administration worked well in the process leading up to going to war with Afghanistan, procedures broke down in the process leading to war in Iraq, or at least so the fragments of evidence that we've been able to collect turn out. Under those conditions, going to Iraq, for example, there seems to be some evidence of exclusion and marginalization of key cabinet members, of key members of the White House staff. There also is report, reports many times of vice presidential circumventions of normal decision-making processes. Again, we saw that in the warrantless surveillance case. If any of you remember reading either Angler by Barton Goffman, or you may also be reading the Washington Post on these issues, no one other than Vice President Cheney and President Bush evidently saw the presidential order or talked about that order before Vice President Cheney took it signed from the president's office. We may still be seeing some of the repercussions of that particular decision. If you look at the post today, the Senate Armed Services Committee report is out on some of the torture or alleged torture that's taken place against enemy combatants and in various places run by the United States around the world. A second issue with the decision process that seems to me suggest an inability to fully adjust under change conditions moves from the crisis situation of national security to the crisis situation of the national government's response to Katrina. We remember that the administration's response was confused, it was delayed, and the responsibility ultimately was very difficult to locate. It seems to me that all in all, when dramatic events breached the stern discipline of business as usual in the Bush White House, the White House's performance as a decision-making and policy-implementing unit has been disappointing. Perhaps, indeed, we can suggest that discipline and planning on the one hand and improvisational flexibility on the other have constituted a key trade-off. And it's a trade-off that this presidency has perhaps reacted in exactly the opposite way as its predecessor. You could argue that that trade-off often caused problems in the Clinton administration, where they may have excelled at the improvisation and flexibility 
were not quite as good with the discipline and follow through. What we see in this administration is an instance of what was called when the, when the administration came into office, we're going to follow an ABC strategy. Anything but Clinton. <laughs> we may see some similar sorts of elements when we move to overseeing and formulating policy in the George W. Bush administration. We think we know that the Vice President and his staff have been players in the policy processes more generally in this administration in which continuing policy councils, the Department of the, rather the Domestic Policy Council, the National Economic Council, and even the new Homeland Security Council have simply not been as central as they have been in past administrations. So there's a discontinuity of sorts and a discontinuity that may cause some of us to take pause and that is if we are not using these kinds of existing policy councils in order to help make decisions then that raises questions about who is involved in decision making and where does the influence come from who is included who is excluded <coughs> the vice president and his staff have been impressive in their savvy in their persistence and in their expertise at times and in doing so this staff which in an unprecedented way is well integrated into the total White House staff. We have reports of David Addington, who has been first the counsel to Vice President Cheney, and then later after that served as chief of staff after Scooter Libby left. David Addington sat at every decision that was made on national security law by Alberto Gonzalez when he was White House counsel. Indeed, the Office of Legal Counsel Jack Goldsmith has written in his book, he can remember only once out of more than 100 national security decisions in which Addington was not at the table. Given that kind of access then, there has been some concern that the Vice President or his staff have subverted efforts at honest brokering by the Chief of Staff, by the National Security Assistant, by members of the National Security Assistant staff. That may raise some concerns that we'll want to probe further when we have more access to the people that worked in the administration and we have more access to the documents of the administration. In addition, there were systematic efforts in this administration, as I said at the outset, that we can trace back to Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, and others to pursue policy goals systematically through administrative channels. That's been done through what we have called politicization, that is working hard in terms of making ideological, ideologically consistent appointments throughout executive branch agencies. It's been done through so-called regulatory review of proposed administrative rules and regulations within the Office of Management and Budget, through the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. Oh, that sounds boring. That sounds like inside baseball of the worst kind. And yet it's here that this administration has been able very masterfully to try to achieve some of its ideological goals consistent with a variety of policy agenda items and policy values through the administrative process, not simply through the legislative process. This administration has done an, a notable job of pursuing these kinds of administrative and politicization sorts of strategies. We know that there has been ideological screening 
of a whole range of appointments throughout the executive branch and to the federal courts, especially the lower courts, as we saw reported in the Washington Post earlier this week, in terms of the Bush legacy, especially on the U.S. Courts of Appeal. In addition, we know that there have been at least a handful of impacts of what I will call a policy politicization strategy of the Bush administration. Frequently, that has helped guide agency activities in directions that are consistent with President Bush's priorities. That should draw applause from people that are concerned about executive branch agencies running wild without some degree of direction by elected officials. We know, for example, that in 2001, officials rebuked Clinton-era environmental policies by easing wetlands rules affecting developers, reducing energy saving standards for air conditioners, allowing more road building and power lines in national parks, and easing restrictions on mining in public lands. For some people, those are very disturbing kinds of actions. For others, they will meet widespread applause. My point is simply that the President came into office with a clear set of policy priorities and policy values and worked his best to instill those priorities and values in the workings of the executive branch. Is that part of a legacy? It may well be at some day. Now we also know, as we're seeing moving toward the end of the administration, that there is a continuing effort to make use of these administrative strategies. The late regulations, the late rules that are getting put in place. To leave, if you will, traps for the Obama administration to have to spend time discovering. Someone mentioned earlier today that executive orders are fairly easy to overturn. They are straightforward to overturn, but what we find out is that most executive orders, once in place, stay in place. New presidents do not change them. There may be a few high-profile executive orders that President-elect Obama, President Obama, will reverse on January 20th, January 21st. But many of the executive orders, and certainly the agency rules and regulations that are put in place by this administration, are going to have lasting effects. Most of them will not be reversed. Final area I want to talk about just very briefly, and that's the area of the so-called public presidency. From the start, the Bush White House was prepared to place communication strategies really at the top of its approach to governing and to leadership. Indeed, George Edwards, one of my colleagues at Presidential Studies Quarterly, has written books in which he talks about governing by campaigning. This is an interesting area. This is an area in which the White House staff I have talked to say, we absolutely, positively borrowed from the Clinton administration. And so this is an area in which the directions and goals might have been different, but many of the strategies, tactics, and techniques were quite the same. That is, trying to govern in part by campaigning. Remember Steve Wayne telling us earlier today that one of the first things that President Bush did once he was inaugurated was to travel all around the country. Indeed, he traveled more than any of his predecessors within the first six months of his administration trying to forge that relationship with a whole range of constituency groups around the United States, hoping that by starting out in that fashion, that would boost his ability to work with Congress, persuade Congress, and get people to consider him President of the United States. 
Now, key to all of this was strategic planning. It's what Martha Kumar has called communication on the president's terms. The Bush White House prioritizes issues. It creates events to emphasize a limited number of priorities. And then it rounds up people to talk about those priorities. What this administration has tried to do much more successfully than its predecessor, I would estimate, is it's tried to control both message and presentation. In many cases, the Bush administration has been very effective at seizing the communication initiative. But there is a downside to that, not surprisingly. It turns out that while the Clinton administration was not terribly well disciplined, when the world changed, when there was a call for a new communication strategy, a different way of governing high campaigning, the Clinton people were able to turn on a dime. Bush administration, not so much. Again, we see another, another instance of what I said at the outset. If there's one telling thing about this administration, it's its discipline, but also its difficulty in improvising and in being flexible. Again, much as Steve Wayne said. In sum, and I'm sorry for talking a little bit too long because the most interesting part here has certainly been the questions and that kind of interchange. But in sum, I think I want to conclude that if we track the Bush staff organization over time, it seems to me that we can conclude in assessment terms, evaluatively, that it started strong, suffered its greatest problems in the middle years of the administration, and for the most part, but I say that advisedly, for the most part, stabilized and worked as expected over the final years of the, of the administration. I'd like to end by drawing our attention to two sets of issues. One is the continuities and the other is the discontinuities. There are several patterns of presidential politics and organization that have persisted in the Bush administration. That links us back to what we were talking about last night in terms of knowing about history and thinking about the longer term influences of history. No president starts afresh when taking the Oval Office. And that's something, of course, many of us need to remember about President-elect Obama. In the Bush administration, at least five continuities I can identify with regard to organization and the cabinet system. There has been a continuing centralization of policy control in the White House and in the Office of Management and Budget. There has been a continuing and amplified politicization of the executive branch. The hierarchically structured White House has continued. Fourthly, the emphasis on public outreach, on governing by campaigning has continued. And fifth, perhaps surprisingly, the administration has continued, even as it's amplified, the substantive involvement of the vice presidency. This is not new to this administration, as any of us that can remember Nelson Rockefeller and Walter Mondale and Albert Gore recall. There has been an intensification of the vice presidential involvement, however. There are some discontinuities and some places we can talk about the signal contributions of the Bush administration. The Bush administration has been very important in the breadth and the depth of its centralizing and its politicizing tendencies. Those have been often personified and infused by Vice President Cheney and his staff. 
and also by senior aides like Karl Rove. Meanwhile, as we've all said, the searing experiences of 9-11 had a powerful, pervasive, and long-lasting impact on this administration. It further empowered those with claims to national and homeland security expertise, and it amplified pre-existing tendencies towards secrecy and towards centralized control. And we've talked about many instances that support those kinds of final statements. In the process, until relatively late in the administration, key players in both the Defense Department and a department we haven't talked about yet very much but probably deserves more attention, the Justice Department, and in the White House, dominated a lot of the ad hoc decision groupings and contributed to narrowing the flow and the diversity of information that apparently was reaching President Bush, who we must add at the end was himself complacent, or complicit rather, in these arrangements. Ultimately, the buck does stop at the President's desk. And that's another thing that we need to estimate when we look back at the Bush years. President-elect Obama then will enter a White House with little physical evidence of its former occupants. There probably will still be W's left on the typewriters, but we're not sure. <laughs> He'll have to confront, however, the staffing and the administrative inheritances, the footprints, if you will, that have been left by George W. Bush. Time for QA. Um, two conditions. If you'd please wait for the microphone to come. And secondly, uh, form your comments in the form of a question. Uh, so feel free to ask away. We've heard a lot about executive orders, but I've heard no mention of signing statements. Yes. And those to me seem to be the most constitutionally shaky. Uh, since we have an audience of political scientists, uh, I'd like to ask isn't that? the best place for political scientists to uh, begin to uh, appraise uh, the true impact of the Bush administration? Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a, a great question. I'll just start by answering, and then my, my uh, colleagues here can join in. First thing to say, of course, is that we know that there have been signing statements in the United States that we can trace back to President James Monroe. So they simply aren't new to this administration. Moreover, this administration, interestingly enough, has issued fewer signing statements, fewer signing statements, than did President Clinton. That also is somewhat surprising. And so what that reflects, I should say, in parentheses, is that we have tried to look quite seriously at these signing statements. I think the real issue with signing statements they cover a lot of things. I mean, most of them can be classified as rhetorical signing statements. They're simply the kind of thing that we know that presidents say when a bill is written into law. So you're thanking the various supporters. You're reaching out to various people that are going to be affected by the legislation. They're wonderful photo opportunities. You can share pens with a whole range of people. So they serve that purpose. Other times, they serve a purpose in which the president, consistent with the statute, is directing the executive branch how, it, how he wants that statute put in place. So to that extent, they can be seen more as almost administrative or implementation documents or directives. Where they really have become controversial, and I think absolutely deservedly so in this administration, are the number of them in which 
the president, in essence, is saying, I have constitutional object objections to parts of this legislation. And as a result of those constitutional objections, I am going to, in my status as unitary executive, unitary power over the executive branch, I will decide which parts of the, the statute we're going to implement and under what conditions we will pursue the implementation. Now, that, those sorts of issues are issues that I hope we'll talk about later today when the constitutional experts are up here to discuss them. There, I think, is where the nub of the real concern is. There is where the nub of parts of the Bush legacy may be. Now, having said that, that's also going to raise the question, well, can't Mr. Obama simply come into office and, in effect, take back the signing statements that are at issue? In principle, yes, he, yes, he could. And he may well in certain kinds of instances. But I'm afraid I agree with my, with my colleague, Andy Rudolevich, that in this new era of what he calls the new imperial presidency, we would not expect any president to voluntarily give up very much power explicitly. Would I expect President-elect Obama or President Obama to act in the way that President Bush did? Absolutely not. For main reason is that there would be a real backlash were he to do so. Is he likely to reverse all of these for his pre successor presidents? I don't think so. I think there will be a real, a real argument within the White House Counsel's Office and in the Office of Legal Counsel over what to do with a panoply of executive orders, of pending rules, of executive agreements, but certainly with some of those signing statements. I think, finally, that this is an issue that, yes, political scientists ought to look at more frequently. They got the most attention because the Boston Globe reporter, Charlie Savage, got a hold of Christopher Kelly's dissertation at Miami University of Ohio. And that's where he reported on signing statements. But they really haven't gotten very much attention, even though I said, when President Bush finally said, well, okay, will allow that no torture amendment into the defense reauthorization bill, it was obvious what was going to happen. That there would be a signing statement issued within 48 hours, I think it was within 24 hours, that would say, I am not going to enforce all, part of the, all parts of this statute. That's a long-winded way of saying, I think you are absolutely right. But it also is a question that the American public and the next president have to confront as well, I think. One more question. Yeah. As a follow-up to yeah, that question, certainly. the Constitution allows the president to sign a law or veto a law. Right. It does not allow the president to pick and choose That's right. which parts of the law he's going right. to enforce. Can you speak to that? Well, that, I mean, that's, that's, that's clearly the constitutional as well as the political concern. Remember that presidents never vetoed laws unless, unless they had constitutional objections until Andrew Jackson. So this notion of the veto being there for a president to protect presidential and his branches <coughs> functions and tasks has been there for a long time. What you're suggesting is what many other people say, which is if you don't like the law, Mr. President, lobby against those provisions while it's still being discussed in Congress, otherwise veto it. This president has chosen not to do that. Now then one asks, okay, why isn't there a kind of response? Why not go to court? Well, why not go to court? 
Actually, we had somebody over here who already had a microphone. This will be the last question. Okay, but but my, my real, the final thing I'm going to say about why not go to court, do you have standing? It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do. Yeah. Hi, I'm Eric Patterson from Georgetown University. And I spent the last year as a White House fellow, so Good. this is quite interesting. So you should be up here, please. <laughs> <laughs> and then previously at the State Department uh, as a visiting scholar. My, my question is, that, and I wish that Dr. Bush was here as well, is about how things work at the working level and how the president affects that. So maybe a question to both of you. First of all, we've heard a lot about kind of cabinet level and inner workings of the White House. What about, uh, Dr. Holt, at the, at the GS level and at the SES level? In other words, the bulk of people who make up the, these organizations, how effective, from your standpoint, was the president in having his agenda happen there? And, and on the national security side, the question I ask is also one about implementation. So not in terms of organizational structures or cabinet levels, but how effective do you feel that the president was in getting the uh, his agenda items to happen through the DOD civilian bureaucracy, the National Security Council lower bureaucracy, as well as embedding that in our relations with other countries like NATO. Okay. You want to take national security? Oh, you can go first. Then. Well, I will. I will see to my colleague here on the national security side. I'll, I'll just say a few things in the executive branch bureaucracy. Again, this is the problem that we have in terms of gathering certain kinds of information. Um, I have done work in previous administrations with various kinds of surveys of senior level, you know, GS-15 and above, some SES, senior executive service, and so on. And we started doing that in Reagan, continued it through first Bush, and again through Clinton. This administration will not allow us access to those people. So that's, that's going to temper what I have to say. What, what it looks as though we see in most administrations is that the administrations pay the most careful attention to a strategic set of agencies. And so, for example, you may well see that the Bush agenda and Bush priorities was given a lot more attention at places like the Environmental Protection Agency than it might have been elsewhere in the executive branch. And that's simply a strategic kind of decision. In those agencies, the politicization is really critical to consider. We are not talking about cabinet members. Cabinet members are the least important people in the executive branch when it comes to the presidential appointment authority, at least in my opinion. The real story is when you get down into the sub-cabinet and the Schedule C appointees and the political parts of the senior executive service. That's where you can see, if an administration is pursuing this strategically, that's where you begin to see some real impact of the, of the presidential policy strategies. So that's, that's where I would look to find a lot more of the Bush administration impact. Final thing I will say is that Dave Lewis and others have looked at Office of Personnel Management data. And, and they find that in this presidency, like its predecessors, there are very clear differences in the kinds of agencies that they pay most attention to in terms of the policy-based ideological vetting that they do. And if that's the case, then we would expect then in agencies that are high up in the president's agenda, there would be significant impact, which is consistent, I think, with what you're asking about. Uh, yeah. 
Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, since we're running a little long, I'll, I'll say simply on my end that 60 years after Truman, the Defense Department is still learning to get together and get along, and the White House is still learning how to implement policy through DOD. And we're going to see that in the Homeland Security Department for some time to come. Forever. Uh, forever, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I want to thank my three distinguished colleagues for an excellent first panel. Thank you so much.